Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm uh, very excited about today. I've got A.J. Sobota already on the line. I'm going to bring him on in just a minute. You know, it is the 14th of August, and I'm just looking at the days. They're clicking away, and I'm thinking summer is going to be over before I know it. I was looking at uh, history on this day, and it was in 1935 that the Social Security Act became law which is interesting. In 1945, Japan unconditionally surrendered to end World War II on this day. And I found this one kind of interesting. In 1962, a U.S. mail truck in Plymouth, Massachusetts, was robbed of more than $1.5 million. What? What's a mail truck doing with a million and a half in, in the back? i got to start being nicer to my mailman. I didn't know he was driving around that much cash. So... Um, you know, I started off this show when I said I wanted to, I don't want to collect autographs ever. I want to collect people reading scripture. And I wanted to get like a million people to read scripture on the show. And it worked for a while. And then we kind of just let it fade a little bit. And we didn't get as many people participating as I hoped, but that's okay. Uh, and then I just uh, had a, a listener chime in and his name is Al. And this is what he put on the voicemail. So if you want to resurrect this little idea you can uh, call and, and just read your favorite scripture verse. And all you have to do is do what Al did. The number is 877-933-2484, because I love reading a scripture verse at the start every hour, but I'd prefer if you did it. So that way you could hear your voice on the radio as well, reading your favorite verse. So again, if you want to do it, 877-933-2484, and then just follow the prompt, and you'll get into our voicemail and you can say this. This is what Al said. Uh, yeah, hi. Scripture for uh, Bill Arnold's show. I don't know if he's still doing that anymore. No, I haven't heard anybody in a while, but I'd like to uh, give him some scripture. First Chronicles 28, <clears throat> verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Just wanted to say that for Bill's show. Thank you. This is Al Wollum. Bye. We all appreciate consistency in our daily lives. Hot water for the shower, electricity, reliable transportation, and even our favorite radio station. We'd miss it if it wasn't there. I'm Neil Stave, a manager of Faith Radio, with a reminder that the daily Bible teaching and preaching and compelling conversations on Faith Radio are available day by day because of the consistent support that keeps this ministry on the air and online and available on the app and on demand through podcasts. The growing media outreach of Faith Radio impacts thousands of lives regularly, dependably, and consistently. And it couldn't happen or wouldn't happen without the gifts of those who benefit and know the value of these daily broadcasts. 
Now, many partner with us as ongoing monthly givers, showing their consistency of support to the ministry that feeds them daily. If you're receiving daily benefit, encouragement, and instruction, join our giving team and begin your ongoing support. Make a gift today at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, the power of meaningful conversation. Oh, do I pray I do that every day. I pray, I pray I do that because it is such a big deal. And I know people are tired of all the ranting and all the noise people are making. We don't seem to, everyone's got an opinion on something, but I don't know if we're listening to each other. And I know that we should uh, have the practicing godly speech. My guest on our studio line is A.J. Swoboda. He's the pastor of Theophilus Church in urban Portland, Oregon. And he teaches theology and Bible studies and, and Christian history at a number of university and Bible colleges. He's an absolute delight. He's written a book called Redeeming How We Talk. Discover how communication fuels our growth, shapes our relationships, and changes our lives. AJ, welcome. Bill, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Uh, you're, a, you're a blast. I love having you on the show. And I thought, let's get AJ back on because this is such yeah. a big deal this idea of how we talk and how we have to start redeeming how we talk. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole uh, kind of premise of this book, my friend Ken Weitzman, and I uh, wrote this book uh, over the course of, a, of really about a year um, kind of after the, the last election, because we began to notice a complete and utter lack of character in the way we were dialoguing with one another, just these, these all-out verbal assaults towards one another. Uh, it's, it's almost like the Tower of Babel actually was a thing. Uh, our, our, uh, our language has so split us that now we just, we just spend our time killing one another with our words. And so, yeah, we wrote this book in an effort to address the, the real core issue of our culture, which is that we, we, don't, we don't know how to talk with one another. Mm-hmm. AJ, let's talk about the gift of speech, the fact we have it. It's a gift. What did God intend when he gave it to us? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, when we, it's interesting when we go to the, the very first uh, few pages of Scripture in the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God's act of creation, uh, not only is it, is it powerful just in and of itself, but the way the Bible describes God's way of communicating. And a lot of the other creation stories in other religions, God takes existing material and creates, or God um, fights a war, there's this huge battle, and God wins. But in, in the Bible, it's a very different way of creating. Uh, in the Bible, God creates by word, with words. Uh, in the beginning, God spoke things into existence. So immediately, we see in Scripture that words have the power to create. Simultaneously, words have the power to destroy. And the book of Proverbs talks about uh, the power of words, either to give life or to take life. And so words are a gift, but they also can be profoundly deconstructing or profoundly uh, uh, painful. And we see even the words of the serpent uh, undo uh, even Adam Adam and Eve's trust in God's words. So it's this Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is a battle of words, really. Mm-hmm. So we're we're going to build our lives based on the words we use. And we're going to become known by the words we use. I mean, because there's people that have words that have come out of their mouth that they're forever identified by. Yeah, no question. And certainly in a in a sort of in the internet age that we live in now, we um, 
we we, we uh, sometimes can't do away with the words. I, there have been words that I've I've said on Twitter and Facebook that I I can't undo. I'm I'm known for them, and and in our in our time and age, we we are our our words almost become canonized in, into our world. And certainly, we see politicians and uh, actors and actresses, theologians, thinkers, uh, say things that they. Uh, that they regret and can't get away from. But the opposite of that is true, and that is that we live in a world where God has given us freedom to use words that give life, and sometimes those words change whole trajectories of families and lives. Uh, in where I live, there's this bridge. In uh, where I live, there's this bridge that has had unfortunately a number of suicides on it, and there's this sign on it uh, that says uh, it's not too late, and if you need somebody to talk to, just call this number. I mean, when you see that, you all of a sudden realize that words really, literally, are life and death for some people. Uh, that they to, to talk to somebody could potentially save their life. Yeah, it's it's really true. Um, so we are kind of living in an age where words have become a little bit more um, depersonalized. I think because of uh, how quickly we respond on text messages and the internet and. Um, we have to be really even more careful than ever because we don't have tone, inflection, we don't have eye contact, and mm. we can really create trouble for ourselves, can't we? Absolutely. I, um, I'm struck. I, I teach um, uh, at a, a, a Christian university, Northwest Christian University here in Eugene, Oregon, uh, as the, the Bible theology professor, and we do a class on uh, uh, on the New Testament. And when you study the way uh, the New Testament writers actually wrote their letters— uh, for example, you look at uh, the book of Acts and Luke's gospel, uh, both written by a guy named Luke, who was a Gentile, probably a doctor. And what's interesting to consider about th- these documents is how long they are and how much energy, space, and time and cost they would have been given. I saw one New Testament scholar actually say that Luke and Acts together would have cost in our time about $250,000 to curate. It would have been that expensive to make. And the point is it used to be very costly to uh, to to use words that were disembodied from relationship, but now it's so easy. Text, uh, Facebook, Twitter—it's so easy to use words now. And I think the Proverbs Proverbs ten is absolutely right. Uh, when there are a lot of words, sin is not absent. <laughs> um, when when we use too many words, sin is crouching nearby. The point being, it used to cost a lot to use words. Now it's so easy, and we it doesn't cost us anything, and something is lost when we uh, can spout off our mind about anything we want, whatever we want. Mm-hmm. AJ, you write in your book that uh, hard conversations are one of the forgotten arts of healthy Christian living. Why is, mm. it, why is it so critical to make sure we're opening mm. ourselves up to these difficult conversations? Hmm. Well, yeah, the, the, the entire—it's interesting when, when, when I hear Christians say that they want to go back to the early church, sort of this pristine vision of, of the early church where apparently everybody sat around it. Sing, sing kumbaya and did Bible studies all the time. But the reality is, uh, when we read the book of Acts and the early churches, uh, letters, the Pauls, the letters that Paul wrote, Peter, so on and so forth, they were all addressing arguments. They were all addressing disagreements and challenges. And the, the, literally, the framework of the early church was hard conversations. Uh, you have uh, the, the book of Acts, you have all these letters that were written to address really challenging questions of their time about sexuality, about uh, doctrine, about uh, the nature of the church. And I just I love that the New Testament has as many arguments as it does in it. 
uh, it says to us a great deal about the nature of the human life, and that is uh, that truth is worth fighting for. It's, it's worth arguing about. It's worth going, uh, going to task about. Uh, in our culture and time, we are willing to go after people on Twitter and on social media platforms, but when we sit next to somebody that we know really well, we often pull back and don't have those difficult conversations. And we rob people. I mean, what is, again, I'm going to keep going back to the Proverbs, but wounds from a friend can be trusted, the Proverbs say. And the, the point is, is that when you're in relationship with a true friend, they, they, they can hurt you and they should hurt you because they can be trusted. So the, the point is we're not shaped. We're not shaped by just pretending everything's okay. We need to learn how to embrace the art of disagreement and challenging conversation because if we don't do it, Listen, if a friend is walking off a cliff and you say nothing, you're not a friend. Right. Uh, words, words matter, and, and we need to be a people that know how to speak truth in love. Yeah, well said. A.J. Soboda is my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more on his book called Redeeming How We Talk. Discover how communication fuels our growth, shapes our relationships, and changes our lives. We'll be back in 90 seconds. A.J. Swoboda, awfully glad to have him back on the program. He's written a book called Redeeming How We Talk, and it's an important book that we should all be paying attention to because words are so significant, the words that we say, but also probably the words that we don't say. And you talk about that there's uh, plenty of opportunity where we should be embracing godly silence. Say more about Mm. that. Well, our, our, uh, our words don't have meaning unless we also know how, how to, how to be quiet. And this is one of the areas of my life that I've had to grow in. I find uh, on uh, environments like social media or, or on um, over text that the mediums, uh, the mediums almost require a kind of immediacy to respond. Right. So like, for example, if I, if I received a text from somebody and didn't respond within three days, they probably would think that I was stuck in the woods somewhere and might have died. Uh, cause, cause I, cause I'm a fast and immediate responder. Mm-hmm. Those mediums require a, a immediacy of response in order to be effective. And so they don't allow any silence. They don't allow time to stop. And so we just compulsively, and impulsively respond to everything without doing the one thing that Bible, the Bible invites us to do, and that is to practice prudence. And prudence is to be thoughtful about our ways, right? To just not act. Prudence is the opposite of compulsivity and impulsivity. It's to act with thoughtfulness and intention and not doing stuff just because our adrenal gland says that we should do it. And so in order to respond appropriately, there are times that I need to stop and take a day and be silent and, and actually come to the Lord and say, Jesus, how do you want me to respond to this? Something is lost when we are forced to respond immediately. We act not out of virtue and character, but often uh, out of just a need to, to say something and fill the void. That's, that's amazing a very... to me, by the way, how much Jesus got away from even his own disciples to go up into the woods and be with the Father. And it would seem to me that if that's what Jesus did, we'd probably be wise to follow in his footsteps. Yeah, it's a very, very important thing you just said, AJ. 
So let me ask you from your own life, what have you done to try to develop into being a, a more healthy, godly communicator? Mm. Uh, I get off of Twitter okay. and Facebook. Okay. And, and when I say uh, to develop healthy communication skills, uh, what I have found is that when I live in those environments, I just reproduce whatever I'm reading online. There's a different kind of word that comes out of my mouth when it is cultivated out of being in the presence of God than when it's just cultivated because I got content on the internet. Uh, largely, we have just been content curators. That's all we are. We're just walking around chopping stuff that we saw. I have this book on my shelf called How to Talk About a Book That You've Never Read. And the whole premise of the book is how to look smart talking about stuff that you've never read. That, that is literally if in the history books, the story of our generation. We talk about stuff we haven't actually studied. We, we are all uh, absolute scholars on stuff because we read a blog article. And as a result, we're just chapping content that we receive without doing the due diligence of cultivating the presence of God in our life. I don't want to speak words. I want to speak the word of life. And those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. You've got a chapter in your book about the unity of the church. And you used a term here, which uh, you'll have to do some more susplaining, uh, which is called conversational gentrification. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we, so gentrification is the concept that we, uh, we basically, uh, in, in, a, in an urban center like Portland, where, I've lived, where I lived for 10 years, gentrification is the sort of societal and urban term for what happens when poor people are shoved out of the city because they can't afford to live in the city. And we apply that to conversation, that we live in an environment where increasingly we gentrify out of our life the ideas and the people that we don't want to have to face. And so we curate around our lives all the voices uh, of the people that we already agree with. You can find a, you can find anybody with a PhD to say anything that you want now. Uh, anything that you want, any argument you want to make, you can find somebody with a PhD for. And Paul, actually, he actually wrote about this. It's the end of the world, Paul says. Uh, when At the very end of times, we're going to surround ourselves with people who tickle our ears, who say the stuff that we want to hear. And so we gentrify out of our life difficult conversations. We push them out of our way because they're comfortable, and we run to things that we already think. This is part of the problem with our American electorate, which is that uh, people that vote for the Democrats rarely know somebody who's a Republican, and people who vote Republican don't any- know anybody who's a Democrat. And so we just we don't actually listen to what each other have to say. We just argue our own points and find Fox and CNN channels that say all the things we already think. We just sort of carry on parallel monologues. We don't really listen to each other. We just wait for you to stop yeah. talking so I can start talking. Yeah, kind of like this interview. Uh, exactly. Uh, you have the questions and I have all the answers. And right. while this is a radio interview and the, and, the, and the medium here is necessary for that, we do this in life. Uh, I, I just am waiting for people to be done so that I can get my word in. And that is the way all of us are living all the time. Yeah. So if we're going to be reconcilers in the world, I mean, that's part of what I think the work we should be doing as believers is trying to be reconcilers, obviously letting Christ do the reconciling. But um, how do the how does our speech inform that? How do how should we be? Mm. What should, how should mm-hmm. we be talking our the theology of words? Yeah, well, the, the 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 sort of invitation the New Testament gives us is that we would speak truth in love, and those two categories, truth, speaking truth, but in love, are two very important paradigms for us. 
Um, some of us only speak truth and don't love, and some of us only love and don't speak truth. I think we all know those kinds of people, the person who's bombastic and is always telling you what they think, but man, you're not really sure if they love you or not. You're not really sure if they care about you as a person. And then the other person that is just Mr. Nice Guy who loves you for everything you did. But if you were walking off a cliff, they'd pat you on the back and say, have a great trip. I love you. Uh, what we need is we need people who do both. And that is that we need people who have the capacity uh, to express the depth of human love and Christ's love for the world and simultaneously to speak truth. I love the story of Mother Teresa, who was invited years and years ago before her death. She was invited to give a talk at a prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C., uh, during a time when Bill Clinton was the president of the Democratic House and Senate, and uh, she was invited to come and speak, and she stood up in front of this House of Democrats and said, if you, she said, you're killing all your babies, and if you don't want them, then I'll take them in India. And you watched this House of Democrats all stand up and give her a standing applause. How, how in the world uh, could she do that? She could do that because everybody in the room knew that she was full of love, and she could speak truth because they knew how much love she had given. And I think in our world today, if we can show people how deeply we love them, they will listen to whatever truth we have to say. Sometimes it's easier just to shake our bony fingers at them. Mm, which doesn't seem to work. Because ultimately, <laughs> in our, yeah, exactly. That, that is interpreted as my disapproval of you as a human being. Uh, and ulti- that ends the conversation. So we, we end up doing ha- more harm uh, than, than, we, than we do good. Yeah, and you write in the book that the ult- that at its core, the ultimate goal of communication is the same as communion. What do, what do you mean by that? Mm. Well, communion, yeah. I mean, for for the followers of Jesus who are listening to this to this broadcast, uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, is the ultimate expression of our oneness in Christ. Right. I mean, it's fascinating when Jesus uh, shared. The, 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 the Last Supper with his disciples, the, the company he had. I mean, he had Peter, who would deny him. He had Judas, who would turn his back on him and never turn around. Uh, you have all of these characters, uh, quite a motley crew, really, of even people that would get Jesus killed. And yet Jesus dined with them. And the, I think the picture there that Jesus is giving to us is that um, that true communion in the Christian sense does not mean that we all agree with each other. Uh, that we, there are times that the church, we disagree vehemently about politics or about uh, ways to interpret the end times, or we disagree, you know, we, we disagree, but we need to have a broader context to know that disagreement is allowed in the church, and we still can eat at the Lord's Supper together. Mm. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, the church has to be broader than our opinions. And if it's not, we're just going to continue to, I mean, there's 66,000 denominations in the U.S. alone it's just going to continue to proliferate. We're just going to become one new opinion per denomination every year. Yeah. AJ, an all-star listener named Scott said, how do you keep finding such interesting and fascinating guests like AJ? Wow. That kind of wraps it up. Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. Well, um, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, I, I think, though I'm grateful to be on, but this is a really critical conversation for the church and the world right now. Yeah, I agree. A.J. Sobota has been my guest, and his book with uh, Ken uh, Witzma is called Redeeming How We Talk, Discover Our Communication, Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationship, and Changes Our Lives. A.J., thanks for doing the show. Look forward to our next talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. Grace and peace. Yep, grace and peace. We'll take a little break and be back with Jeremy Lineman in just a minute.
going to get a chance to talk to Jeremy Linneman, so today's the day. I'm awfully look, uh, excited to have him on the line. He's a pastor and writer. He lives in Columbia, Missouri, and he has uh, written a whole bunch of great articles. He's written a book called Life-Giving Groups, and I'm going to talk to him about belonging today, among other things. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we've well, got a, you know, I love your, your website, and you've got a great-looking family, and I'm thinking, what's not to like about uh, thank you? Thank you. Seriously, what's, what's not to like about you, Jeremy? Oh, I'm sure you'd, you'd find something. It's, uh, there's, there's plenty in there not to like, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure that's all of us. Uh, so your book is called Life-Giving Groups, How mm-hmm. to Grow Healthy, Multiplying Community Groups. That's an extremely important topic in a, in a day of yeah. complete isolation where everybody's mm-hmm. off in the corner with their smartphone not connecting to one another. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a topic I feel really really strongly about, and I, uh, the more I get to to teach on it and write on it, uh, the more I, I see that it resonates with people and, and such a deep desire uh, that we have to connect with one another. Yeah, um, talk about how important it is for us to belong and how that's such a big mm-hmm. deal. Yeah, I think uh, you know spiritually, first of all, belonging to God is is our our deepest need. Uh, we've we've been created. Uh, in the image of God, to uh, be restored to Him, to to belong to Him, uh, but we're also created as relational beings. Uh, we're we're created in the image of a relational God who is eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so with His within His own being, He is uh, relational, and so that's that's part of who we are as well. We're we're relational beings. We're not uh, fully autonomous uh, individuals. And so to belong to one another is, is an incredible need as well. Um, it's it's uh, impossible to find uh, well-being, to find flourishing apart from relationships. And so belonging uh, to God also means belonging to one another in, in the church, uh, belonging to his, his people. Uh, I always feel like w- when I hear the word relational, there, we should always put a word in front of it, like, we're intensely relational. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so when you talk about these life-giving groups, which I, I love this idea, um, mm-hmm. what, uh, what, what makes up a life-giving group and what happens inside a life-giving group? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, that book actually came out of uh, training and teaching that I did at, at my previous church, Sojourn Community Church in Louisville. And I wrote a, a small group manual for the leaders that turned into an ebook for our church network and then turned into the paperback book. Um, but what we were trying to do is create uh, these small communities where people could be themselves in any stage of life, uh, any, anywhere along their spiritual journey from, um, from not even believing to being a brand new believer to a mature believer and a, and a leader. Uh, and, and we kept seeing over and over that this, uh, this growth in Christ was possible uh, when we really, when we really came together in relationship, when we created a, a safe space for people to uh, to be honest, to be vulnerable, uh, to share their stories, as well as connect with God through His scriptures and through prayer, um, and so the the uh, sort of four big things that uh, make up what I consider a life giving group are scripture, prayer, fellowship, and hospitality. Uh, and every group in, in different contexts are going to do those four things. Differently, you might not 
come around, uh, you know, open up God's word every single time. Sometimes maybe you just have a, a meal together as, as individuals and families. Um, but I think if you have those four components, scripture, prayer, fellowship together with one another, and then hospitality, um, which is uh, creating space for outsiders, even people outside the group. Mm-hmm. I think those those four things will be life-giving. Yeah, and I would imagine in these life-giving groups, we're going to be also making disciples, aren't we? That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. This is the the whole goal of this is uh, discipleship, uh, and so I, I think that's the, the goal of the whole Christian life. But even in in community, sometimes I think fellowship uh, can can be the most obvious goal. But I think that's just uh, one component of becoming more like Christ in discipleship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love for you to talk about just this way in which we can what what's what might be the biblical vision of of like a healthy multiplication of being together, flourishing, mm-hmm. discipling, and then going out and, and reproducing that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the biblical pattern that I, I come back to over and over is that God draws us in to send us out. Uh, he draws us in to know him, and then he sends us out to make him known. And so you see this all throughout the, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Abraham is drawn into uh, this call on his life by God, and then God sends him right back out. Uh, Moses is drawn in, and then he's sent out. Uh, you know, the early church apostles, uh, you know, they were gathered praying, and then uh, the Spirit moved, and they were sent out to start a new work of the gospel. And so I think part of uh, being a healthy and life-giving group in- includes multiplication. Uh, it doesn't mean every single uh, community group is going to split into two every year. Uh, but I think there should be growth that leads to new disciples and new groups being started. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, what uh, size groups is a good size? You know, it's it's a it's a good question, but it's it's a hard one. I've I've seen group healthy groups that are uh, five or six people, and then healthy groups that are you know thirty adults with twenty or thirty kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I don't think the size is the most important factor. Uh, it's it's definitely a factor depending on the context and where you're meeting, and uh, at, at a certain point you're going to either outgrow your space or or outgrow what a a leader or a couple of leaders can can provide for. Uh, most of the groups that I've uh, been a part of overseeing have probably been between eight and sixteen adults. Okay, so if if I wanted to get one of these groups together, and mm-hmm. w- would there be a framework? Are there some rules of of having one of these these groups that would be wise to have? Are there mm-hmm. are there rules mm-hmm. for community groups? Yeah, yeah. We um, I, I recommend certain. Uh, you know, each each group really can make their own set of commitments within the framework that its local church has. But I think you you want an overall set of rules that includes uh, that we we come as we are. You know, we don't try to be something we're not. Um, we put others before ourselves. Uh, it's not just about me and getting fed, but it's also about serving and listening. Uh, we keep Christ at the center, uh, so this isn't just a social group or a dinner club, uh, even though those are, are you know, fun and important things that, that give us a sense of belonging. But what draws us together in these groups is Christ himself uh, and the desire to grow more and more into his image together. So um, maybe I want to pick your brain a little bit why sometimes community groups are so hard. Um, yeah. This doesn't seem yeah. easy, even though it's so important, because no. everybody who talks about having a really flourishing life usually refers to their small group or their community group. 
those are the people mm. that seem to be the most connected and the happiest and most thriving. So why are these groups so hard? I agree. You know, I think they're they're hard because relationships are hard. Uh, they're they're hard because people uh, were were complex. Were were sinners in in uh, in process. Uh, and so I think just being in relationship with any small group of people, especially when you're you're trying to cultivate a sense of authenticity and vulnerability, you're actually asking people to to honestly share their sin and their struggle. Uh, that's that is going to be a recipe for challenge. Um, you, you may often have people feel like, well, the group's not, you know, I shared all this stuff, but they didn't care for me as well as I I expected them to, or um, I, you know, I felt like somebody was was quietly judging me, um, or you know, three new people have joined the group this month, and I I don't know them well enough, and I have no idea what they think of what I just shared. Uh, and I think all of that, those are, those are real concerns and challenges, but that's, that's also part of what enables us to grow uh, as well. Uh, so there are, I, I think at the beginning of, of my life-giving groups, I list like 10 or 15 challenges to, to community groups. Uh, and there are, uh, there are a lot. They're very, very difficult uh, to, do, to do well. Yeah, here's another one out of your book when you talk about the idea that people are going to show up with how a group should operate. And I've had groups before, and I think this is how it should work. So people show up with preconceived notions. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, uh, when we started our most recent community group here at uh, the church plant, that was one of the first questions we asked is what, what experience do you have with, uh, you know, spiritual or or church-based small groups? And uh, almost everybody had some kind of experience, but they're all so different uh, from a, a class, you know, a Sunday school style class to uh, a workplace Bible study to just getting together and, and, you know, chatting for an hour and then kind of at the end praying for each other. And so we, we inherently bring in uh, all these different expectations. And if those expectations aren't ever vocalized, uh, you can go for a long time without realizing that, that people are looking for very different things and expecting very different things out of the group. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about that they can be high stakes because if you're a church plant and the small groups are struggling, then there's a chance the whole mm-hmm. church might be struggling. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we're uh, in uh, church planting world right now. My wife and I moved back to Missouri, where we're from, and uh, we're just about to have our, our one-year anniversary of, of public gatherings. Uh, but we're in process of starting our fourth community group right now. And, you know, when you only have three or four community groups, uh, if, you know, two of them are unhealthy, that's half or two-thirds of your church. Uh, so it, it really does matter that, that those leaders are, are well-trained, that they're walking closely with the Lord. Um, and I, I think that's true for all, for all small groups and all churches. Uh, but it really is a microcosm of the church as a whole. Uh, Jeremy, what happens when the small group or this community group starts becoming what you describe as a catch-all, where mm-hmm. it, it, all of a sudden it's discipleship and leadership and development and counseling and ah, theological growth, and all of a sudden <laughs> leaders become completely overwhelmed because it's a it's a catch-all for everything, and then it's then it's then it becomes too much. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's that's one of the the main things that can lead to. Uh, to burnout in, in this way of doing groups. I think, I think it's good to try to do a lot of these things in a community group uh, for the leader to be able to, to provide a, a level of, 
the pastoral care or member care and also to be discipling and doing some of those things. Um, but what I, what I recommend to prevent that burnout is really doing shared leadership. Uh, so taking four or five of the main uh, functions of the community group and assigning them to a, a, a person that, that has that uh, gift. Uh, and it doesn't always work out perfectly, but, you know, you have somebody who's going to be over hospitality and um, food and, and inviting people. Uh, somebody else is kind of running point on, you know, prayer, uh, following up with people and, and doing some of that member care. Uh, somebody else is coordinating maybe uh, outreach events, whether it's a neighborhood party or a service project. Uh, I think I think that's where a group can really take off is when you don't just have one leader. You, you need somebody really running the point. But when you have five or six people that are really owning an area of leadership in the group and serving out of their giftedness, that's that's really exciting to see. Mm-hmm. Is the senior pastor or the lead pastor, is that person um, sometimes or often involved in the oversights of these community groups? Yeah, I, ideally that's. That's certainly the case. It, it depends a little bit on church size. Uh, you know, in different sizes of church with different numbers of groups, that can be that can be more difficult as it gets larger. Um, for me, I feel like it's one of my most important roles. Uh, so I, I lead lead and host a, a group, uh, and then I, I work with the other leaders here. Um, but even at, at Sojourn, uh, you know, it, it just depended on the the lead pastors availability on their their family schedule you know usually they were in a group but sometimes it was really healthy for them just simply to be in a group and not have the primary leadership responsibility there Uh, and and to entrust a lot of the oversight of the groups to other pastors or or elders and and leaders and things like that Mm -hmm. having not gone to seminary uh jeremy i'm wondering do pastors uh in training do they get um, are they equipped in small group ministry? Did you learn that at seminary? I certainly did not. Okay. Um, I, I did a, a master's degree that I think in general prepared me well for, uh, you know, theology and scripture and, and a little bit in the way of preaching and leadership. But uh, I don't think we ever talked about small groups in, uh, you know, in seminary. It took me six years because I did it part time. But um, I don't. I don't know that there was even a viable discussion on community groups um, in in those six years. Even though most churches seem seem to really be, you know, doing small groups uh, in in one way or another. So it it does need to be um, added to the curriculum. It, it's probably existing in in some places, uh, but I think right alongside preaching and and counseling and uh, many of the other important ministries of the church, I, I think training seminarians in how to lead uh, really healthy life-giving groups would would really help the church in the long run. Nice. Let me take a little break. Jeremy Lineman is my guest, and he's written a book called uh, Life-Giving Groups, and we'll continue with that and lots more in 90 seconds. Jeremy Lineman is my guest. He's written a book called Life-Giving Groups, and he's spent 10 years leading and hosting community groups. He served uh, seven years as um, community pastor at Sojourn Community Church in Louisville. And 
I'm, I'm curious uh, because these groups really help us to become mature disciples of Christ because we get that our iron sharpens iron. We get fellowship. We get joy. We get uh, carrying each other's burdens. It's a good place to be, but it's not an easy place to find. You know, a lot of people feel lost and they don't know where they're going to fit in and where they're going to belong. And it's stressful and people church shop. And um, tell me about your personal group, Jeremy. I'd love to hear about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, the the group that we we lead and host now. Yeah, yeah the uh, the way the way we're set up, uh, we have uh, what do we say, eleven or twelve uh, adults, and probably seven eight kids in our our group right now. And okay. so we meet on on Sunday evenings uh, from five to seven at our house. Uh, probably twice a month, we'll have a a big meal together. Everybody will bring bring different things and. And we'll, we'll combine to make a big meal and spend the first hour just eating together. Um, but, but no matter what, whenever we're gathering, we're doing uh, some scripture, uh, dis- discussing what was taught on that, that morning or the, the series that we're in or doing. Uh, sometimes we just spend an hour in a psalm uh, just talking through it and, and how, it, um, how, we, how we receive it and respond to it. Um, but we're also in, enjoying the each other's company. We're, we're experiencing that fellowship as we, as we share food together, as we uh, encounter God's word together. Uh, and we always in, include a time of, of prayer as well. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a lot, but it's also um, really, really, um, I think, meaningful in, in each of our lives. And, and it's, it's drawn us really close together as, as we get ready to send out a new group. It's, it's really hard to see, uh, to see people, you know, uh, sent out. Mm-hmm. How are the kids integrated in this night? Are they with the adults or are they in the other room um, consuming caffeine and sugar? <laughs> it's a little bit of both. So we, um, again, probably twice a month we have um, the kids with some uh, babysitters. So one of our one of our families has a couple girls that are, I think, 13 and 14 years old. Uh, and so they... Uh, have have offered it at the very beginning to to care for the kids and that that works out really well and so this this past Sunday night we set up some stations in one of the the bedrooms and so there was kind of an art station and a reading station and some things like that uh, they might go through a Jesus storybook Bible lesson together um, sometimes they are um, you know watch watching a movie or something as, as simple as that. But um, we, we do really try to remember that the group belongs to them as much as it belongs to the adults. Uh, and so a couple other times a month, we just have the whole group all together. So we're, you know, we're eating together, we're um, having time in prayer, and the kids are, you know, interrupting and running around and offering their own prayers and things like that. Um, so it's definitely an, an added element of, uh, you know, chaos often. Uh, but it's a it's often a really good sort of chaos. Mm-hmm. Now, are you is this happening every Sunday night or twice a month? So we meet every Sunday night, um, but we're often doing a little bit different things. So twice a month we'll do dinner, and then twice a month we don't. Uh, twice a month we'll probably do uh, kids care, and then twice a month they're they're just out and around us. So we we do meet every every week. Now, do some people agree to be part of these community groups reluctantly, and then they say to themselves a month later, oh, this is the best thing that's happened to me because 
it's a fairly significant time commitment to do mm-hmm. five to seven every yeah. Sunday night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It absolutely is. And I, I think uh, some people are even still reluctantly involved. Uh, it's not like, a, you know, these groups are always, you know, always on and always feel uh, super excited. You know, um, I, I think what a lot of us experience, though, is just what you mentioned, that I'm, I'm reluctantly going to this. I, I feel this on Sunday at 4 p.m. You know, I've maybe just preached that morning and uh, met with somebody for lunch afterwards the afternoon with my kids and then at four o'clock I'm I'm often thinking I I could use a night off not you know 15 people including kids coming over Mm -hmm. Um, but then at 7 7 15 as people are leaving I'm thinking you know this was this was really really good and this was worth the extra you know the extra energy output that it required Uh, so I, I do think that's a common a common feeling for sure all right, uh, Jeremy, do you fear burning out a little bit? Because I felt a little burned out you telling me your schedule on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I take Mondays off. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so I, I don't know that we would we would be leading on Sunday night if I didn't have Monday off. Right. Uh, and, and again, this is, uh, this is church planting. So it's, you know, I, I hope I'm not doing the exact same schedule 10 years from now. Right. Uh, we we kind of knew going into it, this is a... Uh, going to be a season with more more people time more meetings uh, more output but um you know we we're also uh keeping as as great of uh rhythms of rest and in, in two days off and things like that uh each each week and so that's uh, that's really important for all this it really does sound that for young churches and a church planting team to have a core of people committed to meeting and to be committed mm-hmm. to growing in their faith and becoming mature disciples, it's going to be the the make or break for the church. I think I think you're exactly right. Yeah. That's been my experience. Yeah. Um, so I, there's probably no downside to this. Um, it's just finding people with a certain commitment level to say, we're a, we're a young church, we're a church plant, we're going to go all in on this. That's right, and and you have to limit all the other programs and ministries that you do. Uh, you know, you can't have three other things going on in the week that you're you're calling people to attend. Uh, I think to do this well, it needs to be the one the one big thing besides Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. And then are there other things that are get discussed uh, besides prayer, Bible study, and carrying each other's burdens and that sort of stuff? Do you talk about um, integrating um, into the local missions or? Um, mm-hmm. you know, how do you provide for, you know, just people in, in your neighborhood or in your, in your community? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Some of, some of our groups will have a, a service component where they might go out once a month and, and serve in the community somewhere. Uh, we've done some neighborhood parties. Uh, so, you know, knowing that everybody's free from five to seven on Sunday nights, you know, we'll, we'll gladly use our, uh, our church members to reach our own neighbors. Uh, we, we say that's one of the benefits of hosting a group is you get to use the group to reach your own neighbors. So we threw a back-to-school party last year, and we'll do it again this year, uh, where we'll you know, just put a, a message up on our Facebook group for the neighborhood and invite people over. And then we've got you know, uh, 10 or 12 believers that are there connecting with our neighbors and helping us make those, uh, those relationships a little bit more intentional. Mm-hmm. And it's awfully generous of you to be opening your home every Sunday night. There must be plenty of parking and above-average coffee. (laughs) 
there, there usually is coffee. It's a lot of paper plates and, and plastic cups and uh, paper cups. So we, uh, we, we are not trying to, to, you know, entertain. It doesn't look right. like a Instagram meal. Right. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's cheap food, paper uh-huh. plates, you know, throwaway napkins. Yeah. And, uh, you know, moving somebody's car because they blocked in a neighbor, you know, that right, sort of thing. Right, right, yeah. But it's about love and it's about community and it's about growing mature disciples in Christ. So it That's sounds right. like the, the end result is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's worth it. Well, Jeremy, it's been a blast getting to know you. Thank you so much for your book and thank you for just putting this vision in people's heads, especially people mm-hmm. that are, you know, thinking about planning a church or they're in a young church or maybe they're in a church that's a little flat, and maybe a way to lift it up would be to start a community group. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So thank you well, so thank much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. This is great. Yeah. All right. We're going to uh, wrap up the show. Uh, Jeremy Lineman's been my guest and delightful. His book is called Life Giving Groups How to Grow Healthy Multiplying Community Groups. It's a great little book. You can go to Amazon.com to check that out. That wraps up our show. I just want to say thanks to all the guests. Really, it's been a great time of uh of discussion and all kinds of you know great wisdom from from great thinkers so i I always appreciate both my guests and my listeners thank you so much for listening have a great night everyone i'll see you tomorrow Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.